My name is Tani Bittner. I came before you guys a year ago. I'm a nurse, or at least I was, at Rainy Children's in the cardiovascular intensive care unit until Nathan and his misinformation pandemic caused me to lose my job. I took care of those children who came in with myocarditis after the vaccine. And I talked to the doctors because I was a charge nurse saying, why are we reporting these to bears? Who is going to report these to bears? It was an unspoken thing that we were not allowed to talk about openly on the unit. I've worked for 13 years in this community, taking care of some of the sickest patients. The day before I was taken away from my position, I was actively giving compressions to a child, pushing Abby, pushing calcium into his veins to keep him alive. And we did. And he went home. And yet, I was ridiculed by those who were supposed to be my colleagues and my friends. I am the face of your misinformation campaign, Nathan. I am the one who lost my career in pediatric cardiovascular ICU care. I took care of children who had COVID. I never got COVID in the hospital. I tested twice a week. I wore my PPE because I loved my job. And I loved this community. Welcome to the Boom Clap podcast. You just heard from Tani Bittner. We're going to talk to her here in just a second. And her interview is so powerful hearing about her experiences uh, from being fired to just what she saw working in a pediatric cardiovascular intensive care unit, you know, in the VAERS, um, unreporting of injuries to VAERS and the um, injuries she saw. So it's going to be really powerful for you guys to hear. And I think these are stories that we need to keep highlighting because even though it's not in everybody's face anymore, it's still happening. In fact, just today, Breitbart reported that, you know, Hurricane Ian happened and the Coast Guard went in to save people. And President Biden actually called a Coast Guard member to thank him for his quote unquote heroic service. This Coast Guard member, though, is set to be fired from his position within the next, um, I think, month to two months because of the vaccine mandate that Biden has in place. And at the end, just like Tawny shared, he says, at the end of the article, he says he loves his job. He feels like this was what he was born to do. And if he had asked any of those people that he saved the day before, if they wanted to be saved, you know, and wanted him to take them out, even though he was unvaccinated, they obviously would have said yes. And so we have our priorities messed up in many ways. And I'm really excited for you guys to hear from Tawny. Hi, Tawny. I'm really happy to have you on. Um, I was just telling Cecily before we got on here, you know, before you came on while we were waiting, that watching your videos and then you sent me that article that you wrote uh, for USA Today, I believe, about, you know, patients needing their family members with them 
and the fact that you work in a cardiovascular or worked in a cardiovascular ICU with PEDS patients, not adults, um, but PEDS patients and were a charge nurse and all the things you're advocating for. I said, I just felt emotionally like somehow attached to you and your story <laughs> just because it's so similar and it just, I am really excited to have you on and happy um, not that you lost your job, but all the things you're advocating for. So thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's amazing um, the collective force that we become, you know, once we find each mm-hmm. other. And it's can be a little bit of a task to be able to find that s- support network. But it's been so amazing being able to find fellow nurses, fellow health professionals, but also people in every sector who have had um, these mandates affect them and their professional experience. Yeah. Well, you bring that up. I think that most sectors now are not affected as they once were. And so I'm finding that as these mandates are not in everyone's faces so much that they're forgetting, and even nurses, like nurses that I used to work with forget that there are people still affected because it's like out of sight, out of mind. And so this is one reason that we wanted to have you on and want to keep talking about this. And we're not going to just talk about the mandates. Uh, Tani, you talked about VARES and, you know, the patients that you saw having, you know, reactions or, um, you know, having problems. Adverse events. Yeah, Yeah. adverse effects um, because of these vaccines. So we're going to talk about that too. But um, staying on the mandates for now, you know, we're still affected. You know, there are still so many capable, qualified nurses and listening to you speak, it's intelligent conversation and you know what you're talking about. And I'm finding that so many of the nurses that stood that are affected by these mandates are really, really great nurses. They're not the lazy ones in the hospital. They're the really good, you know, charge nurses leading the charge at work, you know, speaking out. And so, um, Can you just first tell us about the mandate situation at your workplace, uh, how all that was handled, and how you lost your job? Okay. So I think my story is similar in a lot of ways to other nurses around uh, the country. You know, we had a huge push to vaccinate people with the COVID vaccine, and it was voluntary. And there were a lot of nurses who um, became involved in that process, whether it be administering the vaccines, taking the vaccines, or doing things to support the push out to get people vaccinated. And um, for me, I just, I wanted to sit back and kind of watch what was going on. And I fervently stayed up to date with as much news, research, information as possible. that was being discussed, um, maybe not always openly, but you would get like little glimpses, you know. And um, there was a discussion starting, I want to say around June in 2021, where our governor started positioning himself um, or positioning the state into mandating these vaccines or having quote unquote requirements for um, vaccines for healthcare workers. And roughly around that same time, the MMWR of the CDC released that big report on Massachusetts and how there was, you know, the huge outbreak of vaccinated individuals getting COVID and spreading Mm -hmm. COVID. And 
um, I want to say it was like 70, 70% of the people. I remember that. Vaccinated. We talked about that on the podcast. Yeah. Do you yeah. remember that, Cecily? I yeah. do. And I think you're correct. I think it was around 70%. Yeah. And so at that point, and you know what, to be honest with you, working in the hospital and knowing the nurses that are vaccinated, and especially being a charge nurse, um, you begin to um, see your fellow nurses getting COVID, right? You know, we're, we're starting to see other nurses getting COVID who have been vaccinated. And at that point, I was like, how can they possibly make this a requirement? Because it's obviously not being effective in preventing um, infection or, as the CDC said, preventing transmission. So, you know, it, that was kind of bonkers to me. Well, um, the rhetoric became louder and louder, and I can't remember exactly when the mandate um, came, like language came out, but it said by October 1st, I want to say it was like the end of July, maybe in California when that came out, um, but by October 1st, uh, healthcare professionals needed to be fully vaccinated to be able to work in the workforce in California, but there was a, um, there was a disclaimer where you can have a medical or religious exemption. You're entitled to a medical or religious exemption. So around, you know, in the summertime, we were actively having no mandate rallies. I don't know if you guys Mm -hmm. had any in your States, but we were actively, you know, really pushing for the no mandate rallies And um, there was a group of us that organized a no mandate rally at Rady Children's Hospital, which got a lot of press and news. And I have to say, there were nurses out there who were, quote unquote, fully vaccinated, and they were amazing. And they were like, Tawny, what can I do to help you? And I was like, come to our rally. Like, we need to be able to show that even people who are fully vaccinated support our, you know, this, our opinion that there shouldn't be mandates of any sort of medical um, pharmaceutical product or intervention. So, you know, we're moving forward. We had the no mandate rally, um, which was really interesting because our hospital put out a um, memo on the intranet, you know, for all the employees. And Radio Children's is one of the largest institutions in the country, actually, um, it has a 90% market share of pediatric care in San Diego and Imperial County. And we have children that come to us from all over the world, um, for different medical interventions. <clears throat> so it's a, it's a very big institution. Mm-hmm. Um, they put out with thousands of employees, they put out, you know, this memo anti-vaccine rally. And I actually sent a letter to the head of operations and HR and said, like, why are you putting such a derogatory term for our rally? We specifically have called it a no mandate rally. So they had, they ended up taking off, um, or removing that language, but it kind of poisoned the well, you know, it was already Mm -hmm. there for multiple days. Mm -hmm. And then come make So our rally was the beginning of August, mid-August, I went to the county supervisors meeting that they were having, um, 
and it was on COVID response and the talk of mandates because the county was starting to issue mandates for as an employee of um, county workers. And so then I spoke at that meeting and I openly discussed the myocarditis cases I was seeing, the mm-hmm. increase in, um, you know, we had a huge increase in uh, concern for children's mental health. Um, many of our, I could talk about staffing with that respect. Um because, you know, we would have a floor nurse that could take maybe three or four patients. But if we had a um, case come in where there was a mental health concern, that patient needed to be one-on-one for safety reasons. Well, then we didn't have enough sitters. So it literally took staff away from um, other potentially caring for other patients. So a nurse that would take maybe four patients now only could take one. And so we had a huge nursing shortage just because of that reason. Like our nursing shortage in the pediatric population, at least at my work, a huge contributing factor was the need for extra nurses to care for those mental health um, cases that were coming in. It wasn't the COVID cases. Um, So I discussed that. I discussed the lack of care that people had received and the fact that many of these chronic conditions are becoming worse um, and the many different health screenings that were not able to happen for over a year and a half because people weren't able to get into their doctors. So after that um, two-minute conversation, or I should say two-minute little speech that I had, yeah, then, I was going to say I watched that because you sent that one to me also. And at the end of it, like at the end of all these, they just like, you're done, that your time is up. And they just start saying your time is up. Your time. And I, I just, this is the first one I was thinking like, do these politicians like have a time limit on the time mm-hmm. that they can speak? No, but no. you have a time limit as a person in the community, right? Like you can only say so much. You yeah. only want to be heard for so long. Yeah. It's just so... Just like they're appeasing you by allowing you this little time to say your piece and then like, on you go. Yeah, on you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Gross. And it's <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, it was pretty crazy because the second time I mm. talked a year later, which was the one that kind of went viral everywhere, the second time I spoke – um, one of the supervisors literally got up in the middle of me bawling my eyes out and left the room, like got up and left. It was, that's just in, insanity to me that an elected official thinks that they have the privilege to be able to just leave when a constituent is talking and not only just talking, but like bearing their soul to them. Absolutely. You were. And I mean, maybe it was hard to hear. Maybe it's hard to hear, you know, what you do at your job and what you see and how, I mean, how insignificant are, I, I shouldn't say insignificant are these people, but they, they have no understanding and no grasp of what you do at your job, but they're making decisions. It's very true. It's very true. I mean, I feel like so many times they're like, oh, just, you know, oh, just a nurse or, um, oh, whatever it is. You know what? You know what even bothers me too is that 
we had, for instance, the people that clean our hospital rooms, um, they, many of them didn't want to be vaccinated, but this was probably one of the most stable, well-paying jobs that they could get at their mm-hmm. education level and at where they are, where they were in the world, you know, like in life in general. And um, they got the vaccine because they felt like they had mm-hmm. to. And, yep. you know, and we don't acknowledge, I feel like, you know, we're looking at healthcare workers and stuff, which is really important, but we don't acknowledge those people. And you have to realize too, those people are cleaning our rooms. Like after a code, our rooms are gross and disgusting. You know what I mean? And they are like, they're cleaning our rooms. There's a huge safe, I mean, a huge safety in that because of nosocomial infections, bacterial infections, you know, viral mm-hmm. infections, because some viruses can survive and, and be and be able to replicate after being on surfaces. Like they are extremely important parts of mm-hmm. the healthcare process and Absolutely. they're not being acknowledged. You know, it's mm-hmm. like there's so, there are our um, BAs. So those are the people that are like our unit secretaries. You want any, you want to know anything going on in the unit? You ask the unit secretary, they know it all. Right. And so like, it's those people are being affected. I mean, I feel like I'm very lucky because I could highlight the nurses, but I also want to speak to the fact that, as I said at the beginning, like this is affecting everyone in every sector in healthcare alone. And it's still affecting everyone in um, healthcare because, you know, after kind of skipping ahead, but um, after we had the first series mandates in California, we now have booster mandates. And so those people are having to go through the process all over again. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, uh, you know, I spoke at that meeting, then the city the city decide, or I'm sorry, the county decided to make a misinformation panel that would meet every month to try to combat the misinformation that people, you know, people started speaking up a lot. Um, and so that's what I was speaking to when I said, you know, I'm the face of misinformation because mm-hmm. they literally created this misinformation panel that would meet to be able to figure out how to... Um, discredit a voice like mine. Yeah. And let's just stay there for just a second. So this misinformation panel, again, not a part of seeing what's happening day to day in the hospital, not at the bedside, but yet determining what is information that is appropriate to share and not appropriate to share based on what's top down from the government. Right. And just one more thing you had brought up, you've been looking at throughout this time, all the current research you've been looking at all like observing what's happening around you, right? Observing the nurses that are getting sick, that are vaccinated, knowing that this not preventing transmission, you know, just observation plus current research, right? And do you feel like the people in your hospital making decisions, like the administrators? Because from my standpoint, the administrators that I was talking to they, there was no way they were looking at the information. There's no way they were making observations or looking at the information. They were just strictly looking at what the government told them and saying, yes, okay, that's what we'll do. I think it was a mixture of a couple of things. It was them wanting to not follow the science 
I mean, they knew about it because we were mm-hmm. being tested. I was being tested twice a week. You know, people would look at me and they'd be like, um, well, I don't know if it's okay for an unvaccinated nurse to, you know, take this patient. And I'm like, I'm the safest person in the room. I'm tested you twice tested. a week. <laughs> I think I'm yep. tested twice a week. You're not tested at all. There's no requirement mm-hmm. for a vaccinated nurse to get tested. And we did have cases where vaccinated healthcare personnel came into the hospital and worked and worked around our transplant patients, worked around our immunocompromised patients. And um, I was like, I'm the safest person in the room. Like if your tests work, and if you say that's an appropriate mitigation strategy, I am abiding by it. And I am tested more frequently than the parents that come in. If, you know, I'm tested more frequently than any of the healthcare providers that are mm-hmm. vaccinated or mm-hmm. auxiliary staff that are vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, if we follow the science, let's go down that path. And um, what was really egregious actually is that the vaccination or um, the misinformation panel did have some hospital administrators, but as you have said, they were, they were not being willing to follow the science. And um, the other thing that I think is egregious as well is that Ready Children's is a, a clinical testing site for Moderna. They got NIH funding for doing clinical testing on children for Moderna. So what financial incentive do they have to um, not follow the science in that respect? You know? and uh, Yeah, um, that's, that's a big deal. <laughs> that's a big deal, right? It's a big deal. And so they are, they are literally a clinical site. For, I mean, you go on UCSD, look on UCSD, Moderna clinical sites, <clears throat> and Rady Children's is one of them. <clears throat> and so um, I, and they did that, they accepted that role also without creating a policy or procedure for bears. So you have a NIH-funded, Moderna-funded clinical site testing a vaccine on children, and the site doesn't even have a policy or procedure to be able to report the post-marketing events. And this institution has 90% of pediatric care in a huge county. San Diego Unified School District is one of the largest school districts in the country. So that gives you, I think it's like maybe the second or the third. It's like LA, San Diego, and New York City are kind of like the top Mm -hmm. school districts. So you have a huge population of children here. And um, I just find it horribly egregious that... um, an institution would take on the responsibility of of being a clinical site without having the appropriate policies in place. Well, that just shows that they're not really set up with a mindset of testing this vaccine, right, for safety. Because if you're testing it for safety, you're preparing for nothing to happen, it'd be okay, and preparing also for you know, adverse reactions, right? I mean, you, 
you can't go into something like that with the mindset of there's not going to be any adverse events, right? Like, I'm just, I mean, I would I'm not that. shocked. I'm not shocked. Like, this is what I expect, but it's shocking to me at the same time. Does that make sense? Like, for me, I just can't imagine thinking like that, but it's not shocking because this is how hospitals are. Yeah, it is. I mean, I thought for sure we would at least have a, some sort of VAERS policy because not only are we a children's hospital, but we're the main primary care clinic for um, this county. So your child goes to a pediatrician, they are 90% likely to go to a children's hospital pediatrician within that network. Um, so you are giving arguably the highest amount of vaccines to children. I mean, the county does give some vaccines to children as well, but um, a lot of the patient population at Rady Children's are um, people who are on um, state uh, funding for healthcare. So many of those children go through Rady Children's. So you're arguably the largest provider of vaccines and you have no policy on how to report to bears. And not only do you not have a policy, but you have no education, zero. We get no education on reporting. And when I would talk to many of the nurses, even before you know, COVID, and we would see that some adverse events of vaccines, and I would talk about, you know, like, are we gonna report to bears or how does that work? No one knew what I was talking about. No one knew what I was talking about. At least with COVID and bears, the discussion of bears, there's more awareness to it, but they still have no idea how to report. They have no idea what the website is, where to go. Um, zero idea. Yeah. I had a nurse that I worked with actually message me and ask me for uh, a link on where I got some statistic. And I was like, oh, you can go to VAERS. She goes, what's VAERS? I'm like, oh my gosh. And I ended up going around the unit and like asking nurses. And it was maybe like a quarter of the nurses had heard of it before. And they were the nurses you would expect to have heard of it because they were ones that like are more thorough in actually paying attention to what's going on around them. Um, But we had had, I mean, we've we've had many events over the course of time, like specifically Guillain-Barre, but we had had one at the beginning of 2020, not, you know, COVID related. It was a patient who had like flu shot, um, pneumonia, and something else. They had had three vaccines, had a, a Guillain-Barre case, and the nurse was like wisely advocating for the intensive, the intensivist to report it to VAERS. And I was a charge nurse that couple days, and he was like, well, we can't like guarantee that this was because of the vaccine. And I'm like, you don't understand what VAERS is for. Like, it's not your job to decide if this is 100% a vaccine-related injury. It's your job to assess the fact that vaccines were given immediately before this patient experienced Guillain-Barre, which is a side effect related to these vaccines, and then you need to report it. And then that's the work of this institution to do the the legwork, but you just have to report it. No clue. No clue. And he was the head of our critical care at the time. Yeah. I mean, I would say that is a disturbing reality. It's a disturbing reality. Um, 
And it's so funny because I even, so I want to say around June, because we were hearing about adverse events, you know, we were actively giving COVID vaccines to the community. So not only did my hospital partner with Moderna to create, you know, a clinical site for administering their vaccines as quote unquote research, but the county awarded my hospital, um, the ability to provide these vaccines to the community. So, you know, because it's federally funded, there was logistics in what sites were going to be administering vaccines and how you could get the vaccines. So Rady Children's was given the contract to administer these vaccines. So not only were they administering it to children, but they were administering it to adults. And it was the whole, you know, warp speed plan of getting it out, you know, the elderly, those with chronic conditions, and then it trickled down to other people within the community. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, no VARES policy. And we would hear because I'm a person who wants to see myself. I don't want to just read about something. I don't want to just hear about something. I don't want to just speak about something. I want to see it. So I've actually traveled to the CDC and sat in ACIP meetings. I've traveled to Washington, D.C. and sat in health meetings, spoken with legislative offices, um, congressmen and senators in Washington, D.C., traveled to Sacramento multiple times to advocate um, because I am a seer and a doer you know? And so um, I had the opportunity to be able to go and work in the vaccine clinics. And I was like, I should, I remember having the application up at work and being like, I should do this just so that I could be a part of it and like actually see what's going on. But then I just felt like morally, I just, and ethically, I just, I can't, I just can't Mm -hmm. do it. So I did rely on people who did work the clinics and information. And, um, you know, once again, there was, if anyone had any sort of reaction, there was no way to um, report it to VAERS. So I made an internal complaint about the lack of that, the lack of them reporting it to VAERS. It was really interesting because the vaccine clinic code started being called overhead. So you would get, you know, vaccine clinic, code blue, child, vaccine clinic, adult, code blues. So you would actually hear those for, for a little while. And then it kind of like tapered, tapered out and you didn't really hear them anymore. But, um, you know, when I talked to the nurses who worked in those clinics and was like, what is your process? Like, if there's an adverse event, what is your process? And they're like, we don't really have one. I mean, like, we just kind of did, you know, the basics of, BLS and then like called for, you know, we have a rapid response team and we have a code team. Mm -hmm. And so we would like get on the phone and call for those. Um, But that was, that was how they handled it. It was all internal, which with a private company, it's very hard to get internal information from a private company. You know, if it was like UCSD where it's state, you could submit requests for information and they would have to provide it for you. But with a private company, like even if it's a nonprofit, you can't get that internal information. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
you were obviously outspoken in your hospital when you were still working. And I'm not sure exactly when you were, you were so, fired, right? Yeah. Not so, okay. So I'll kind of go through the process with you. Um, so we were told we could really uh, uh, submit a religious or um, medical exemption to the vaccine. And um, so a bunch of us did. Actually, on my unit alone, I believe there was eight people who, um, eight nurses who ultimately, I don't know how many people submitted religious exemptions total, but eight of us who submitted the exemption and we were like, we are firm on this. We are inflexible with this. Um, And so they told us, I think we had to submit it by August 5th, I believe. And then we were told that we would have an answer in a week or so. Like we were expecting maybe mid, hmm, actually I take that back. I want to, maybe I think it was September. So we were told like mid August, August, we needed it, um, we needed it submitted. We were supposed to get it like the first week in September, whether we actually got our request accepted so to speak. And they were pushing it off, pushing it off. We like mm-hmm. didn't hear anything, didn't hear anything, pushing That's it so off familiar. more. Um, and finally, on September 25th, we got an email, an email that said, by October 1st, if you are not fully vaccinated, and the option that they gave us was the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is not FDA approved and has a much higher risk of clotting and issues, especially in women. If you don't get it by October 1st, you'll be removed from the bedside, which pretty much means that they're going to be firing you. You were fired from the bedside. Um, They said that they would go through a process until March 31st of attempting to find us a position within the institution that was not quote unquote patient facing Patient facing meant anything, any position on campus where you could potentially run into a patient. Several of us, so they gave us a list of jobs. This is like the craziest part about it for our accommodation. So they said, we're blanketly accepting your religious exemption. We're not challenging your religious exemption. We're blanketly accepting it. We just need to find you a new position in the organization. And so um, it's devastating to us, right? Because we're nurses. We're bedside nurses. My unit, we're ICU nurses. Mm-hmm. Pretty much every single one of us, like, grew up in the ICU, so to speak. Yeah. Whether it be, you know, I came from NICU and then went to CTICU. Um, and that was our education level. They gave us jobs that were, like um, – accounting, HR. Yeah, clerical jobs. Clerical like, jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jobs that were completely outside of our um, education experience or... Outside of what you're gifted to do. Yes. Yeah. Completely outside of it. Or... Um, and we and there were a lot of positions at the time, which is even more crazy. There were positions for telehealth, for nurses working in telehealth. And you literally are like at a separate... Um, Uh, like brick and mortar building where you get your training and then you pretty much do it from home after a certain amount of time. And so 
there was like no potential to run into patients. You know what I'm saying? And we were told that those jobs were not available to us, which if they really were attempting to accommodate us, they would have at least filled those positions with some of the nurses that were taken out of, you know, their bedside position, but they didn't. So we went back and forth. I mean, there were jobs that I looked at where I was like, well, I have this experience in clinical research from as a research assistant when I was in college, you know, like it's been 20 years, but I'll try. And they're like, well, do you know this program? And do you know this program? I'm like, I don't know those programs. Well, I don't, you don't, that, you know, I asked for training. Um, would I be able to get some training involved. No, you need to be able to go directly, you know, work directly in that area. Um, so there was an attempt by us to be able to go into those positions. And it was very obvious early on that it was, it was a smokescreen, right? It was a way Mm -hmm. to, um, attempt to legally protect themselves. Um, And so ultimately, March 31st, it was when we actually were fired from the institution. Okay, we're just going to take a quick break from this interview. And I'm going to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, which is Kaleidoscope Kids Bible. You guys, I really believe this is one of the best ways to engage your kids in the Bible. They are filling the gap between those children's storybook Bibles, which are so great, and the adult translations. It just fits right into that tricky in-between stage. Our family loves them. I would highly recommend that you guys give them a try. Maybe start with something like John or Acts. Those are the two that my family started going through. Um, They're releasing new books all the time. Their most recent release is Romans, but they also recently released Revelation. Two books that super interest me to see what Kaleidoscope has done with them. Can't wait to get my hands on those. You guys, you can order these through a subscription model as well for half the cost of Netflix, and you'll get brand new books delivered to your door every month, which is amazing. So you can check them out at readkaleidoscope.com and enter the code BOOMCLAP to take 10% off. So, but what's so interesting about that whole situation is that come, I don't know, I want to say November or December in 2021, once again, Governor Newsom And the California Health Department said, okay, well, we're finding that all these people are getting COVID who are vaccinated. So now we're going to require boosters in healthcare personnel. So they started, so then they created a mandate for boosters in healthcare personnel. But once again, you could have a religious exemption or you could have a medical exemption. What's crazy is that Rady Children's allowed religious exemptions for nurses for the booster and kept them at the bedside. So they removed us from the bedside, said we were unsafe and that we were a liability to the institution. And they kept these nurses who were fully vaccinated starting, we started vaccinating people in like, I want to say January of 2020. Like we were one of like the first first sites um, to vaccinate. I'm sorry, my kids are like, there's a lot of chaos going on over there. I don't know if you hear it. (laughs) Um, 
they started, we started vaccinating very early on. So those nurses who received the religious exemption for um, the booster vaccine, it had been like a year since they had received any vaccine. And yet they kept those nurses at the bedside. Um, Mm -hmm. So once again, if we're really talking about science, and if they're really saying that you need a booster to keep people safe, they're not following yeah, they're not, it. They're not following their own science. They're like not regardless following. of whether we agree this is scientific or not, regardless of whether we think this is ridiculous or not, they're not even following their own science. Yeah. 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 Correct. It's very hard to um, – that, that was one of the hard things for me with my um, – management team and administration is the fact that they didn't even like fully believe in either they didn't fully believe in it or they just didn't have the guts to fully promote it because like people for example like what I was let go for what I was resigned for was not participating in the discriminatory action. So I said, no, I'm not wearing an N95 all day at the time I was pregnant. I was like absolutely not. This is so unsafe. And um the other thing that the weekly testing and then potentially increasing your insurance premiums, which didn't affect me because I was one day a week at the time, but potentially increasing insurance premiums based on whether you're vaccinated or not. Meanwhile, I'm working beside nurses who obviously have major health issues, but their insurance and premiums aren't increasing. Anyways, my point is like the things that I was let go for, my manager did not promote with the team. Like she did not have the guts to walk up to somebody not wearing an an N95 and not vaccinated um, and tell them, hey, you need to put on your N95. They were allowed to continue working. It was me singled out. And so that's one question I had for you also. And maybe this, maybe you already answered this question by way of telling me that there were eight other nurses who had religious exemptions and had to find other jobs as well. But do you feel like because you were outspoken throughout this, you know, saying, you know, hey, maybe you guys should have a VAERS policy, you know, and in filing internal complaints, like talking to the doctors about this, like, hey, are you going to report this to VAERS? Do you feel like you were singled out somewhat because of your outspoken nature? Or do you think that this, your hospital was pretty much just like across the board, like if you're not vaccinated, like you're out? You know what, that is something, that's a question I really hope gets answered in discovery of our lawsuit. So, okay, you know, there were about 38 of us that ultimately fired, or um, who are fired, who did enter into a lawsuit with Radius. And um, that's one thing that I would like to ultimately know is, um, did they single people, specific people out? Did they protect themselves, attempt to protect themselves by just doing this blanket, like everyone's fired? Um, what's really interesting is that they did play favoritisms because there were a couple of people, like supervisors, who were then hired um, by Radies to do things much like so beneath their skill level, but it was still within the hospital. And get this, they're required to enter the institution through the back door. They can't enter <laughs> the front door. Oh my gosh. That's disgusting. They have to enter the back door. And so um, I just, I, I'm still trying to it's just wrap my at the same mind time, like- around 
interesting how they're like allowing them to still work, but like hiding the fact that they are like, it's kind of like twofold there. I don't know. Very odd. Yeah. It, so, um, it is really odd. Um, so yeah, that would be a bit, you know, that's a question that hopefully we'll be able to answer through our lawsuit. Okay. Um, one other question I have for you. Did you, cause you were working in the pediatric ICU and I commend you for that. Like every time there's a PALS code called, you know, I, after I had kids, like I just couldn't even think about that. Like that, like working in an adult ICU and having those people, you know, their lives in your hand is hard enough, but like kids, I I commend you for that. That takes a special person, but Mm -hmm. um, working in that area, were you seeing an increase in cardiac events with children post-vaccine? So um, yeah, that was one of the things I spoke about in 2001 before the supervisor meeting was that we did see a huge increase in myocarditis, diagnosed myocarditis in children. Um, You know, some of the kids, some of their troponins, some of their troponins, were 16, not 0.16, 16. There was one kid whose troponin, I want to say it was like 36, 36. I mean, for those people who And for like non, non, okay. Are you going to say that? (laughs) You could go ahead and say it. (laughs) Yeah. Just for people who aren't in the nursing profession or don't understand what that is, it's just an enzyme that's elevated, that's indicative of cardiac damage. So it's a lab. Yeah, and something normal is like less than 0.05, kind of depending on where your reference range is for your specific lab. So 0.05 is normal. These kids were above one, and many times, um, many of them were anywhere between three and, like I said, like 36. I don't know the exact range because I didn't see all of the children specifically, but um, I did hear about a lot of them because of being a charge nurse. Mm-hmm. And um, they would have heart palpitations. They would um, feel dizzy. They would um, feel sick. You know, they would throw up after eating. A lot of, like, the cardiac, like, congestive heart failure, cardiac events that you would see in an adult um, you can also see in children, um, exercise intolerance, um, chest pain, stabbing chest pain. Um, those were the complaints that these kids were having when they, when they came to the emergency room and then they would do a cardiac workup and then they would see that their troponin levels were really high. Um, so this is something that's really interesting too, is that Overall, the ki- most of the kids, not all of the kids, but a lot of the kids looked pretty good. Um, they would be discharged even with high troponins. They would not wait for their troponin levels to go back to normal. As long as they were, hmm. quote unquote, trending down, they would discharge them home. And then they would bring them back for follow-up echoes. And that's the part that I really struggle with and get a little bit upset about because um, – with the papers that have come out about the myocarditis, you would see that the echoes are actually the most indicative of long-term heart damage. And so if you had, and specifically, it wasn't even um, ejection fraction. Ejection fraction is not specific to long-term effects of cardiac damage with this type of myocarditis. Um, it was a... a Echo exam, I always get this messed up. I think it's LGE, large, I think it's LGE is the acronym. 
Um, but that is indicative to um, future like congestive heart failure, future um, problems with your heart. And I felt like, you know, when you look at how the CDC tracks data, any sort of data, because they track data on medication as well, um, other types of medication. And when you look at um, data in general, you have an admission and you have a ICD, I think it's 11, maybe it's 10 code. So a, a specific code that's tied to the diagnosis that you have when you enter into the hospital. And what they do for studies is that they will then pull um, gen- like I want to say generic information, but it's information that doesn't give um, the specifics about the identity of the person. It just gives like maybe the length of hospital stay. It gives um, the diagnosis. It gives like maybe interventions that happened. um, And that's what they go off of to be able to give an epidemiological snippet of what happens to these people. So you have these kids with high troponin levels. They are admitted to the hospital. They're discharged as long as their troponin is trending downward. And they have all these follow-up studies on the actual prognosis of how they do after that discharge date. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the data... It just looks like, oh, myocarditis and discharged within a week or discharged within, you know, so many days. And you don't have all of the follow-up data that that shows you kind of like the prognosis of these children. So... I have a question. And I'm literally raising my hand because I'm so involved just listening to you guys. Obviously, this world is yours. Like, I was not affected in the same way by this, being that I was out of nursing, but you guys have been in the ICU, right? So I'm enjoying listening to you talk, but I have a question about um, you were saying that they would let the kids go as long as the troponin was trending down. Mm-hmm. So this was a change in procedure from what was done previously. If kids would come in with heart damage or myocarditis, they would keep them previously and this changed after? They would. Well, this is what's crazy is that we had so few myocarditis cases every year mm-hmm. that to be honest with you, I don't even really remember wow. per se what their process was. Um, so that was in and of itself is something that is really interesting. What Mm. else is really interesting is, um, these myocarditis that cases that came in, they generally looked okay. You know what I mean? They would have chest pain Mm -hmm. with exertion. They Mm -hmm. would be tired easily. Um, there were some kids that would have, you know, some minor arrhythmias that once they, you know, received some medication. Ibuprofen actually was a huge thing, which was getting that inflammatory, Mm -hmm. attacking that of inflammatory response. Um, And once they were able to be like, okay, you know, we're not having the chest pain, you know, they were having, we're not seeing like these PVCs that we would see occasionally. We're not, you know, then we'll, then we'll let them go home as long as the troponin was trending down. So there was Mm -hmm. like some things that did have to happen um, Mm -hmm. for them to go home. But what was so interesting is that we didn't do the, um, those, those follow-up tests to 
really understand Mm -hmm. what was happening to their hearts. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm curious also, like what was the talk on the unit when you started seeing all these kids coming in with like heart issues that you guys really hadn't seen in this sort of frequency before? What was the talk on the unit from doctors, nurses, like were there allusions to the fact like perhaps this is because of what we're pushing right now or was were they talking around it? Um, they were mostly talking around it. So whenever mm-hmm. there was like a vaccine that was tied to someone coming in and I want to say um, we saw some really dangerous arrhythmias with girls, like very dangerous mm-hmm. arrhythmias with girls. Um, where the arrhythmias were so erratic that even our electrophysiologists were, weren't able to fully describe what was happening to their hearts. Wow. And these were like active um, le- um, college-bound athlete girls. So it wasn't someone who didn't use their heart on a regular basis, um, you know, with real physical activity and strength. Um, so I, I want to mention that because, you know, cardiac deaths in kids often look like someone, a child just collapsing, right? And many times that, that's what precipitates that are these arrhythmias that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, there is not a good discussion about, can these vaccines cause deadly arrhythmias? Like, Mm. we know that CDC acknowledges, other countries definitely acknowledge that there's an increased myocarditis risk. Myocarditis can cause arrhythmias as well, right? Um, It's, you know, often one of the most common things that you see with myocarditis is arrhythmias. But what was interesting to me is that there was really no discussion about that. And there were parents who would come in, even parents within healthcare that would say like, my daughter is an athlete. There's no cardiac disease in my family. Why is she having this arrhythmia that you are trying to manage with like four or five different medications and it's still not working? Um, which is pretty, you know, pretty incredible. So we did see a couple of those as well. Mm. Um, But with the myocarditis, uh, it was like the whisper, like, you know, like, hey, Tawny, did you hear about the case that came in last night? Or like, there's another myocarditis case after the vaccine. Or... And then people would be kind of shrug their shoulders like, oh, it's myocarditis. You know, it's not the worst stuff that we see, right? We see like really horrible stuff. We're taking care of really sick kids because we do ECMO, we do VADs, we do transplants. You know, we so these like myocarditis cases with high troponin and chest pain and these kids look okay, but they're healthy kids. These are mm-hmm. healthy kids that are getting myocarditis. Um, like just because it could be worse doesn't mean that it makes this okay. Right. Correct. Correct. Totally. And so, um, it was something that people, he really didn't talk to the doctors about it because the doctors would openly mock the anti-vaxxers, you know? Mm -hmm. So 
You openly. had said that like when they talked about myocarditis, it was like a whisper, right? It was- and I'm curious, like when they would tell the parents or the patients that this was what was going on, would they say to them, this is myocarditis or would they try to say something like a virus attacked your heart? So like, would they talk around it in that way because so, of the fact that myocarditis kind of became like that word that everyone was aware of, you know? You know, they would say myocarditis and mm-hmm. then it would turn to like a sick heart. Um, right. And so that was the language that you would see a lot. Um, and like I said, some of the kids end up, ended up doing it great. Um, and okay. You know, like their troponin wasn't super high. They went home. Um, my concern, and I've said this multiple times before, my concern is the long-term effects on the heart. Absolutely. You know, these are young, like I said, these are young, healthy kids. This is not a heart that has been used and abused for 50 years. That, you know, these are hearts of young, healthy kids. The fact that they kind of come back to at least normal-ish is a good thing, right? But um, what I did see is that the kids who had COVID and recovered and did fine, like totally fine, um, playing again, doing sports, um, active, no feeding intolerance issues, um, no stomach aches, because that's a big thing with myocarditis too, is kids complain mm-hmm. of stomach aches because you just have poor heart function and your gut's affected. So if your mm-hmm. child is complaining of like stomach aches, not being able to tolerate food like they typically did, those are really big signs of like, maybe I need to pay more attention to this. Um, it was the kids that did fine and they were vaccinated. Those are the kids mm-hmm. that I think really um, had the biggest hit to their body and to their organ systems, including their heart. Yeah. Well, this is another reason why VAERS is so important, right? And for people to actually know to report and to report properly because of the fact that we need to be tracking this over the long term, right? It's not just like a two-week process, see how they're doing. No, like this needs to be measured over the course of a long period of time. And that's, like you said, that's what's not happening. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and a lot of autoimmune, there's arguments that um, some of the mRNA vaccination processes are, are adverse events are more like autoimmune related. And with autoimmune mm-hmm. disease, it, it, you're not going to see it right away. It's going to take exactly a while. For that was really... my biggest concern personally mm-hmm. for me taking it was autoimmune. Like I already had underlying inflammatory issues I knew about. I have worked on my health for years and I was like, I'm not about to take this in my body and hear my manager and CNO are arguing with me that it's my best way of protecting myself. And I'm like, I protect myself every day than better than any nurse on this unit yeah. by way of my nutrition, my exercise, and how I think about my health and how I take care of my body. So don't you go telling me how to protect myself. Yeah. Um, but before we move on from the kids, I do want to bring up because like, I guess 
as we talk about this myocarditis, it's just so bothersome to me. Like my former hospital, this is still being posted on their Instagram account. Pictures of little kids in masks. Visit carl.org for vaccination locations. Thanks for keeping our community safe. Getting the COVID-19 vaccine for kids six months and up, the booster shot for those five years and up remain the best ways to protect your loved ones. That language is still promoting that somehow it prevents transmission Mm -hmm. and somehow it's the best way to protect your kids when it is not. You know, you said yourself, you know, the kid, most of the kids that got COVID did very well, ultimately, you know, long-term wise or not long-term because we haven't had long-term yet, Mm -hmm. but, you know, um, seem to bounce back okay. Whereas we're not really sure with the myocarditis cases yet. Um, And it just, it bothers me that healthcare institutions are so okay promoting this and have no, like, there's just no reservation in, you know, saying, you know, maybe we need to think about this. And that's so scary to me. And we even have, there's even posts with cardiologists saying, you know, this is the best way. This is the best thing. And I just, I just don't understand that. I absolutely don't understand it. And I think the kids portion, the myocarditis portion that you spoke about is so important because you can see, like you could see an increase in these things, right? Whereas with the adult population, a lot of the things that we were seeing that like even nurses that were very much for the vaccine were kind of like, yeah, this is kind of weird. I think this is probably related to the vaccine. Like we would have patients come in, you know, bleeding from every orifice, you know, mm-hmm. and they were like, oh, they just took too much Coumadin. And I'm like, I I don't really think so. <laughs> like yeah. it, this isn't normal. Um, but or even if you, they're taking Coumadin, is it wise to give them this mRNA vaccine? Yeah, we don't exactly. know because we're exactly. not adequately monitoring this information. But but I guess what I'm saying is like you, there was one specific thing with kids that really increased and it was easy to see. And mm-hmm. so it had to be acknowledged. But these um, instances with adults, like they just have kind of, I mean, the kids have been swept under the rug too, don't get me wrong, but very much with the adults. Like no one wanted to acknowledge anything because it was just kind of, um, it was varying. It wasn't always the same thing. And they were already things that we would see. Maybe we're seeing them at higher incidences, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it wasn't as easy to put your finger on, I guess. And with the kids, it has been. Yeah. And I would say, um, I have a good friend who works in – she worked in a COVID ICU for adults um, at a major institution. And, you know, she took care of all the COVID patients coming in from the beginning when we didn't know really about this disease. And Mm -hmm. she's still there. Um, And she was like, Tawny, we are seeing so many people like under 40 with strokes, Mm -hmm. heart attacks – um, the biggest one is for her, at least that she's seen have been strokes and heart attacks, but you know, other things too, like Yambre and some other stuff, but, um, it's really quite sad because, and you would think that with adults, there would be a more of an acknowledgement because adults can communicate. They can, they can verbalize what's happening. They can verbalize what happened to them in the past and how it's changed and the present. Um, And it's still, they're just gaslit. Everyone's just gaslit in so many ways. Yeah. Well, it just shows how little 
initiative people have to think for themselves. Everybody's just buying into what they're told. Like, oh, I was told that this was safe and effective, so this couldn't be it. This couldn't have anything to do with it. Well, well and I think even if they have these inklings that like something's off, I think there's this huge peer pressure, social pressure, mm-hmm. especially in the cu- current cultural climate, right? Like if you say the wrong thing, you're a bad person. Yeah. Um, even yeah. if it's it's not the wrong thing, it's just you literally having just wonderings, right? Yeah. But you're immediately slapped with a label. So adults are just, I think a lot of the time, scared. Scared yeah. to well, like observe the, what's going on. The ones that advocated for themselves, the one that had the ones that had clear vaccine injuries that have talked about it on social oh, yeah. media, you know, like they they have been like vilified. Just Oh, absolutely. And their doctors have made fun of them or told them that they don't know what's going on, you know? So like Cecily said, that there's proof of that. All right, Tawny, is there anything else you want to say? I really appreciate you coming on and I'm sorry I didn't plan for this to be this, you know, take up so much of your time <laughs> yeah. or be this long, but. Yeah, um, you know, I do want to, I do want to add, I want to add something too, because I don't want to discount that there was Miss C cases, M-I-S-C. Um mm-hmm. That we mm-hmm. definitely did see Missy cases as well. Um, and those kids could get pretty sick, you know. They, it was very scary for parents because it literally looked like Kawasaki disease. If you guys well, are familiar with Kawasaki yes. disease, that's absolutely 100% what it looked like was Kawasaki and disease. And are you saying from COVID itself? From COVID itself. Yeah. From COVID itself. So- you said that, and I'm really glad you brought up Kawasaki because this is something I think we've talked about this on the podcast, and I'm not we've talked about it on Instagram. But the Miss C thing, like, I don't understand why they had to like totally. Re- why well, do understand? They totally relabeled it as something when there's already a description for this in Kawasaki, yeah. you yeah. know, and this is something that happens with viruses and things, but they relabeled it to make it something different, so it was COVID specific. Because yeah. it was like a more scary thing for people if it was totally new, right? Not to Correct. say it's not scary overall. It is, but relabeling it did something mentally so for people. What is really interesting is that San Diego has a Kawasaki clinic. We are known for our Kawasaki clinic, actually. Um, and there was a news article, I want to say in like 2018 or 2019, about the increase in Kawasaki cases that are happening. Like there's a huge increase every year. I think they said from like 1994, 1995, every year there's been this big, this climbing increase in Kawasaki cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's obvious. It's an obvious increase every year. Um, what I found to be so interesting is that the Kawasaki doctors are the doctors who are following the Missy cases. Not mm-hmm. only that, but one of the Kawasaki researchers came onto our unit because they were studying the myocarditis cases. And she said to me, if I had a son, I would be hesitant to vaccinate him. At the same time, our institution was putting out what I would label as propaganda because there was such a push to get children vaccinated. And yet the people who were actually a part of the research were saying, I, I definitely wouldn't give my child two of these vaccines. 
because we did see an increase in myocarditis after the second vaccine. After the second. And so it was such a disconnect for me. You know, it was like one of those things where I was like, am I in the twilight zone right now? Um, And yeah. And so I've been actually wanting really bad to be able to go back and see, did we see a drop in Kawasaki labeled cases and an increase and, you know, and did that drop in Kawasaki cases get filled by the MISC cases? That that would be very interesting. You know what there's I mean? So, that's the thing. There's mm-hmm. so many interesting things we could look at to like help so, us figure things out, but no one wants to. No one wants to. And well, that, I don't want to say no one. We yeah, do, but we do. no one that like is in a to. position to do it, right? <laughs> I know. I would love to. That was like one of the positions that Radies had was like a part of um, – the genomics center and a couple of other things, which of course I'm not qualified for because I don't have a degree in genomics, but I'm like, oh my gosh, if I could be a part of those studies, that would be amazing. You could just write what the study should be about. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That would be amazing. But um, yeah, I mean, we were, the the thing about Missy cases is that we are, we were able to put a definitive label to it. You know, we were able to say, this is definitely associated with COVID. And um, you have, with with Kawasaki, it's so hard because it's like, well, yeah, they have a history of influenza. They have a history of rhino, or they have a history of adenovirus, or, you know, there's certain populations that are more likely Mm -hmm. to have Kawasaki. So, uh, it was just so obvious because this was not an endemic virus at that time, right? It wasn't endemic. So we were able to definitely distinguish that virus compared to all these other viruses that are, that are endemic mm-hmm. in our population. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm also just interested now in the increase in Kawasaki's and why that is and pot- I've already got like mm. potentials forming in my mind of why that is. <laughs> so right. I mean it's yeah. it's pretty interesting specifically that they say around 1995 is when we saw an hmm. increasing amount of Kawasaki. Um and now I'm going to go conspiracy theory with you guys so you could either cut this out or not. No, but- I'm good with it. <laughs> I'm totally good with it. <laughs> um look at the 1986 legislation um, for the National Vaccine Injury Act and look when the implementation of um, that law took place and look at the required vaccines and the vaccine schedule for specifically for children under five. And um, because Kawasaki typically happens with kids around that age. And so um, I just find it fascinating. You know, it would be nice if we actually had. Yeah, if we had just more insight into it. Okay. So you, we had talked a little bit about why, um, you know, there's not conversation going on among adults. And we kind of had alluded to the fact that there's probably some social pressure, peer pressure. And a question that Rita and I had discussed wanting to ask you is why do you think you had the ability to stand up, speak up, and just really stand in your beliefs? 
Um, it's so interesting you asked me that because I, I'm homeschooling my children and I actually, I'm reading them this book. It's called, oh, cool. um, as a man thinketh. Mm-hmm. It's old, old, old book by James old Allen. Old books are good. Yeah. Old books are good. Um, and I, my stepdad is emergency room doctor. My mom's an emergency room nurse. My father is a retired firefighter. My husband's a retired Marine officer. I feel like from a very young age, it was instilled in me that um, you do what's right. You do what's right. And um, you have faith in yourself. Um, You have faith in what you know. You accept what you don't know. You accept you might be wrong. Um, But you also have to as I say, stand in your sovereignty. There's another old book that I read as a kid that now I'm reading to my children. Um, Actually, I'm so embarrassed. I forgot. The Price of Liberty. Price of Liberty. I read it to my kids. And I was reading it to them as I was in that quagmire of purgatory where I wasn't fully fired, but I was fired from the bedside. And um, it talked about how people gained liberty within the Western culture and um, individual liberty and what that means. And um, this idea of standing in your sovereignty and standing for what you believe, um, standing for up for the innocent, standing up for the ignorant, you know, because... Um, it's really being able to, to weather the storm and know that deep down, believe in what you're doing is going to be the betterment of everyone. Like, mm-hmm. that's your ultimate goal, you know, right? Like, that should be your ultimate goal is um, if you're going to be a thorn people's side, that at least be a thorn in people's side because you're going to be improvement to people's lives in some way. And so um, Mm -hmm. it was just being able to be like, I need to stand firm in this. I need Mm -hmm. to stand firm in what I know, in what I witness. I need to resist the gaslighting. I need to ask the questions. I need to be supportive of people around me. And another huge part of it is that I have an amazing husband. I have a husband who, you know, I talked to him about before I even did my first open talk to the Board of Supervisors in 2021, I said, if I go down this path, are you going to support me? Because I need your support. And I'm not going to be able to do this without you. And my guess is I probably will be fired. Um, And I need to know that you have my back. And he has had my back. I mean, there are times when he's like, Oh my gosh, Tony, <laughs> what else are you getting yourself into? But <laughs> he, he has been like my biggest cheerleader in so many ways. And I could not, I couldn't have done it without him. That's Such great answers. Good. That's good. So glad to hear that you have that support in your life, but also like as for like where it started, like it started with how you were raised, right? 
And I mean, there's so many moms listening to this. And I think that's something that we can all really take to heart is that even when it doesn't feel like we're making a difference or making big waves in the world, the way we're raising our children Mm -hmm. has more potential impact than anything we could do on our own. So I think that's a real encouragement to people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's, that's a huge thing is like, you know, parents, you're important. I don't care what the government says. I don't care what daycare says. I don't care what teachers say. Like, you are important to your children. Mm -hmm. And so um, really take pride in that. I feel like so many of us, unfortunately, because of life and careers and jobs and trying to feed our families and clean our house and take care of the pets and you know what I mean? Whatever else we're trying to jam pack in our day, we lose sight of that. But um, you are so important to your children. You are your child's biggest advocate. Yeah. I hope people really hear that, the how you were raised portion, because that's something that I've been trying to put my finger on for everybody we talk to that has taken a stand is just like, how are you different? Because very few people, like a lot of people – say that they want to. A lot of people I work with said that they will stand. But in the end, very, very, very few did. And so I think it's interesting to separate out, you know, is there a defining characteristic? And if it's how we were raised, I hope parents take note because this future generation is going to need it more than we do even. Yeah. So they are, you know, and it was interesting, too. I actually showed dogs when I was younger, which is kind of bizarre, I realize, like, now, like, that was your hobby, <laughs> I was showing pigs, dogs. So. <laughs> it's even weirder. <laughs> so, so I did. I don't do any of that. I don't know, guys. <laughs> but you got goats, though. So. <laughs> I do. I, I love my goats. <laughs> so I did. But one of the things we had, it was expected of us to do, was taught, um, for the junior handlers to do was to go up to the judge and ask for corrective criticism. And I think that is something else that is so important that children need to be able to, to sit there and, and, and receive corrective criticism. And from parents, so many times parents are, you know, kids are like, Oh, you're just, you're correcting me. You're always correcting me. You know, you don't always respect the corrective criticism that you get from your parents as children, but having to be in a um, professional arena, because, you know, when you Mm -hmm. show animals, you present yourself in junior showmanship, you're presenting yourself and um, being able to have an outside respected source, being able to come up to you and be like, this is what I thought you did great. This is what you need to improve on. Um, it's scary. It's really scary as a kid. And um, uh, going through that process, I think, really helped build that courage within me to be able to have, um, be able to take corrective criticism, receive it. And then, as my mom always said, chew on the meat, spit out the bones. Like, Chew on the, the nutritious portion of what people say, and those bones, spit them out. They don't belong in your mind. They don't belong in your heart. Like, chew on the meat, spit out the bones. And so those are, a cu- yeah, those are a couple of things that I really appreciate that my mom instilled in me. And um, 
I think it gave me some courage and what I'm trying to instill in my kids. Yeah. It's, it actually reminds me a lot of Rita hearing that story because I remember Wynne had a show this past summer and she went, you told her, I think, to go to the judge and ask for that corrective criticism. And she did. Yeah. Um, it was pretty cool. And I'm just kind of thinking like my kids aren't in 4-H or anything and we homeschool. So I'm like, okay, I got to think of some opportunities for them to seek some outside corrective criticism because yeah, sometimes they do need to hear it from yeah. someone other than a parent and it's putting themselves out there and it's good for them to do scary things like that. I really yeah. think it's such a, a courage builder, which is so important. It is a courage builder because it is something scary. And you and after you practice doing scary things, it's they're not as scary anymore, you know? It and becomes so, invigorating to do it, it then, right? It does. It does. Yeah. It does. Um, so, yeah, those were a couple of things that I, you know, and like you guys have said, I've really tried to think like, what makes me tick? You know, like, why mm -hmm. am I doing this? Am I doing this for good? You know, am I, yeah. I have to really reflect on why I'm, yeah. why I do what I do because we all have egos and I don't want that to become a part of this story because it, it shouldn't be a part of the story. There's no place for that. And so, mm -hmm. um, I've really had to do a lot of reflection and a lot of personal growth over the past, especially over the past year. And um, those were a couple of things from my childhood that I think really helped. It's awesome. Hey, Tawny, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. Like I knew I was going to enjoy a conversation with you, but this has been great, especially the second half and getting into just some things, not even like so COVID specific here at the end, like just great. Um, do you want to tell people quickly where they can find you um, after they listen to this podcast? Yeah. Um, so I do have a public Instagram account called Nursing Soulful Heart SD. Um, I don't always post there, but I, I occasionally do things that I find to be important. Um, we also have a website that um, has a little bit about our story where we're seeking donations for our lawsuit. Um, and that's at, oh my gosh, I'm so bad about this. It's at Give, Send, Go, Rating Nurses, I believe is what it's called. Um, but okay. there is a link on my Instagram. Okay. And we'll link that in the show notes for our listeners. So Okay. Sure. Awesome. I appre We appreciate that. Um, so much. And like I said, there's 38 of us that decided to enter into the lawsuit. And I feel like each and every one of their stories should be highlighted because they're all so different and unique, but we're like bound by this horrible tragedy, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. and many of the nurses have had to either move out of states, have had to move out of the area. They're doing horrible commutes, you know, to other jobs. Are they working in areas that are so below their education experience and gifts, which is really too sad. Okay, you guys, we're we're gonna let Tawny go. Okay, we thought I we'd know. have her. For thank like you 30, so much, you guys. And now we're an hour and eighteen minutes in. <laughs> so thank you, thank you to your kids also for their patience. Please do check out Tawny as um, at the places she said. We will put that in the show notes as well. 
And as always, you can check Rita and I out at theboomclapcommunity.com. We also would love it if you guys would take the time to leave a review. I'm just going to read a recent one here. It says, I have been a listener from the very beginning and have enjoyed it so much. You ladies are knowledgeable. You take the time to do your research and your godly wisdom amazes me. I also feel the way you share your messages comes from a loving place too. I enjoy each and every episode truly. Keep up the great work and I'm so proud of you both. God bless you ladies and your families. So thank you for that. You guys, it means so much when you take the time to do that and it really does help the podcast grow as well. But if you want to find us outside the podcast, you can find me, Cecily, on Instagram at cecily.dicky or on my website, thegracetogrow.com. And you can find me, Rita, at ritarogersco.com or ritarogersco on Instagram. Thanks for listening.